0: The church in Bloomington, Indiana says hello to all of you this morning. Uh, it's great to be here, and uh, thank you so much for your hospitality to welcome me. It was great spending time with uh, you men this this weekend. I appreciate your humility and your receptive attitude. as um, I kind of shared a few things from my heart and from the Word. Now, this morning, we were looking at the Gospel of Mark, this passage here. And what we're looking at is a prime example of uh, what some people call improvisation. That's what the Gospel of Mark draws us to, where we see this great story unfold before us. And we see in the title, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we know from the very outset what this story is going to be about, before we even get into it as readers. We know that Jesus is the climax of the story. We know of God's rescue in him as readers looking back, looking into the story. But no one in the narrative knows what's happening. No one at all. In fact, at the beginning of the story, we read that the demons, they know who Jesus is. Jesus, you, you are Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Only the demons know who Jesus is, is the Holy One of God. And in this story, uh, at the end of the story, a centurion declares the identity of Jesus. So no one in the story knows who Jesus is at all, except the demons and the Roman pagans. Not the disciples, not the Jews, uh, not Jesus' closest friends. Uh, The reader does, though. It's kind of like reading, uh, it's kind of like watching The Sixth Sense, you know, that that old movie, except watching it in reverse. You know, you know, we've all seen that movie by now, right? He's dead, right? (laughs) Hey, I'm going back to Bloomington, pressing can deal with that. So the entire time no one recognizes that Jesus who he is and what he's come to do uh, but Jesus does not give up on them he doesn't stop pursuing them and he calls them to follow me again and again and again and yet they don't know what it means they're dull right o- only Jesus stays in front of them calling teaching drawing them and we see in the Gospel of Mark it is a, a rapidly paced book it's the shortest gospel and throughout the book you'll you'll see the word and come up a lot, and, and, and. you also see the word immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. And what, the right, what Mark is trying to do is trying to propel us to the cross. I encourage you to read this book in its entirety today, or soon this week. And it propels you to the cross. Why? It's because Mark is calling his readers. The Holy Spirit has inspired Mark to lead the readers uh, of the first century and us today to realize that there is a critical point of decision that we are propelled to as we behold Jesus on the cross. And Mark invites you into the shoes of the disciples. We are the disciples. We're to find ourselves in Peter. We're to find ourselves in Andrew and these other guys. And every moment throughout the gospel, there's an opportunity for them to choose to uh, where are they going to go? How are they going to follow? Are they going to come under Jesus or, or not? Well, what is that going to look like? And that's what we're called to as well. Let me pray uh, before we engage this text more fully. Father, we approach you this morning not out of our own moral rectitude or out of our uh, accolades or our good works. Lord, we approach you this morning because you have first approached us. Lord, we've already enacted that in this service, that you call to us through your word and you pursue broken people who continue to stumble and bumble and uh, who are dull to the call of Jesus to follow me. Lord, we acknowledge that now as we engage your word and as your word engages us. Lord, teach us once more what it means to follow Jesus. Make us receptive, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Before we moved down to Bloomington, Indiana, uh, my family and I were at a church in downtown Indianapolis called Redeemer, and uh, the first time, you you walk into, Redeemer's in a historic building, a stone building right downtown, and uh, we walked in, into the sanctuary, and uh, it it was just, it it sweeps you up, kind of like this one, it sweeps you up into the ceiling, except the building was built in like 1909, and they have steel girders, and uh uh, stained glass windows all over the place, wood floors. It, it was just beautiful, stunning. Uh, the paint they matched the paint to the original building, uh, and, and I was blown away. But the thing that really got me was uh, as I looked at the stained glass, as I looked at everything. There's one window on, on that side of the sanctuary. That side of the sanctuary has this enormous stained glass window, but the one on that side, there was an enormous window, except it was just blank. It was just normal glass. And the entire service, it bothered me, right? The, uh, my friend Jason would preach, and you know, I'd lose my attention, and I'd look at the stained glass, and I'd look at that window, and it was em- it was empty. Why, in this beautiful structure, is there this space here that, that's empty? Uh, yet there's a framework around it, so you can see that at some point there was something there. And then I learned the story that when the building was made, uh, Benjamin Harrison, President Harrison, his widow donated a Tiffany's stained glass window to the church in 1905. This beautiful window, it's called the Angel of the Resurrection. And over time, as people fled the city and went to the suburbs, the church kind of lost all of its members and it fell into disrepair and it eventually wasn't a church anymore. And uh, at that point, homeless people were living in the sanctuary. Like the roof was rotting, the floor was rotting, and the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art came. And they took the window. And it's now at the museum. And so you have this magnificent window and a magnificent emptiness here. And what the emptiness screamed out was that there was something that had to be fulfilled. You walk into the sanctuary, and you see the beauty, and the grandeur, and the possibility, the hope, the vision. And then there's emptiness. And it screamed out to me, something is waiting to be filled. There's a beauty, and a grandeur, and a glory. There's a purpose that is waiting to be fulfilled. There's kind of a a master narrative that is not yet complete, and that window pointed at it. And this was kind of the situation in first century Palestine, when Jesus came on the scene. You had the history of the Old Testament, you had the covenants, you had temple sacrifice, you have the the, the glory of, of God and the nation of Israel, and yet this people... They were in exile still, even though they were living in the land. There was something that remained to be filled. Something that was empty and missing. That they were looking for. They longed for. This is a people who were designed to be a a testimony, a witness to the rest of the world. To point to this God. And yet there was an emptiness. Jesus enters into this emptiness. And what does he come proclaiming? He says... The time has been fulfilled. The time is filled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, I am the one who fills the emptiness that you've been longing for, that you've been waiting for. In fact, that you've been scrapping things together to pile up and fill in that space in place of me. I have come. And we hear in Isaiah 52... How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Jesus is this watchman, is what Mark is saying. And this is meant to echo the, the image of uh, Phippides, right? the, the, the runner from um, Marathon during the battle that uh, the, the, the Greeks had just conquered this great foe and he ran to announce to the kingdom that the battle is won. We have won victory. And then he ran in the city, collapsed, and died. But it's a separate part of the story. This is the image that we're seeing is the watchman running to tell the good news. And this is for us today. It's not just for Mark's first readers. This is for you today. right? The contours of following Jesus, we begin asking, what does this look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do we fill in the space of our life? Right, we all kind of have a, the weight of an empty space, kind of waiting there. What, what is the? Where is my story going? What is the meta narrative, the, the grand story of this American worldview? Is there a goal? Is there a telos? Is there an end to it? And what is the meta narrative of my life that I'm in? Where is that going? What What does that look like? This text shows us this morning that Jesus has fulfilled the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so your life is to look like following Jesus. There are three things uh, that I want to look at first in in this following Jesus. Uh, This looks like an invitation. This looks like following Jesus in mission. And this looks like following Jesus in challenge. Invitation, mission, and challenge. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this invitation? It means an invitation to relationship. So let's look at the text. Mark chapter 1, we read in uh, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. We see here that Jesus is going to the Sea of Galilee. Not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city, the place where you would think the glory would be, right? That's not where Jesus goes. He goes to an insignificant province, and he goes to meet insignificant people. Fishermen, blue-collar workers, people that the world would write off. And yet, these are the very people that Jesus pursues. He pursues the unimpressive. Now, did Jesus, was he just kind of going on a stroll alongside the Sea of Galilee because he likes the beach, and he just happened upon these guys, and he just thought, maybe I'll give you a call. No. In fact, in John 1, we see that Jesus knew Andrew and Simon, Andrew and Peter, Simon Peter, already. Because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus when Andrew was walking alongside him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew follows after Jesus. And Jesus actually turns to him and he says, what do you want? Andrew says, well, teacher, I want to see where you're staying. What kind of answer is that? I want, I want to see where you're staying. Jesus says, come, follow me. And they spent that day with, with each other. And then Andrew ran and he told his brother Simon Peter, hey, we found the one that Moses pointed to, the one that the prophets pointed to, the, the, one that we've been, the one to fill. And Andrew leads his brother Peter to Jesus. So they had spent time together. Jesus knew them and he sought them out. He knew them ahead of time. He wanted them. That's a word to you this morning. Jesus wants you. It's easy to think that we're forgotten, that we're just uh, operating in the, the mechanized meta narrative of uh, our careers or our home life or whatever that or school, whatever that looks like for you. Or we're, we're caught in this story that's been written for us. But Jesus knows you. And he's not going to let you just waste away your time fishing at the Sea of Galilee, ignoring that he has come to fill in the glory in your life, in this world. Then what happens in verse 17? And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He says, follow me. Follow me, not my teaching." He doesn't say, follow my way. He doesn't say, follow my system. He's not talking about following a system of rules or a system of life, but rather, follow me personally. Engage with me in relationship, in friendship, in fact. This actually indicates that Jesus was a teacher, but he's fundamentally not a rabbi. Because rabbis in this time, they actually would, uh, would teach, and people would come to them. And these people would memorize the teachings of the rabbi. They would memorize the rabbi's ways. They would memorize the rabbi's system. They would memorize everything about the rabbi. And then there would be rabbinic tryouts. And they would have to spout out all the rules. And they would show that they could follow. And they could show what they could do and what they knew. And then the rabbi would say, yes, you, yes, you, yes, you, come. Jesus is switching it, though. Do you see that? He's not calling these men to try out for him. In fact, he is indicating that the... the, the 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 methodology of the prophet who would go out. Elijah, go out and seek and call to Elisha, follow me. And this is what he does with his disciples. So we must follow his invitation into relationship. Second, we must follow his mission. What this means is that our vocations, our callings, are transformed. And this involves what we do. Let's look at verse 17. What we do is involved with this. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Well, you know what's so interesting about this is that previously, just before this, we read, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And now Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishermen. You're fishermen, I'm going to make you fishermen. Well, in fact, this, the, word, the same word is used, halees, is the word, fishermen. Well, that doesn't seem that exciting. I'm already a fisherman, Jesus. This seems to be the same from a fisherman to a fisherman. In fact, Mark is using this as wordplay to kind of be playful. And Jesus is probably using this as wordplay to be playful, too. It's, it's intentional of Jesus. Hey, you're a fisherman, but I'm going to make you fishermen. But Fisherman and men. What he is saying here is that your calling transformed doesn't mean, may not mean, that you're leaving your vocation. to to go and be a missionary in Africa or a missionary in the center city of uh, Milwaukee or or maybe you are called to that. But what this means is that your current vocation, what you do to work, to earn a living, to contribute to the flourishing of this culture and the pushing against the fall, that is utterly transformed. You aren't just earning money. You aren't just uh, doing research. You're not just building stuff. In fact, what it means to become a fisher of man means a transformation of your perspective on your, call, your vocation. You're not just feeding kids and putting them to bed. You're actually raising men and women to follow Jesus. That is the vocation of a parent. You're not just doing research. You're actually contributing to the flourishing of other people and the pushing against of the fall. This is an utter transformation of our vocations and our perspective on our work. This also not only involves what we do, but why we do what we do. Right? This drives down to the very motivations, our drives, our priorities, and our focus. You are not just making money. And you aren't just making money to give money, although that's wonderful, please continue to do that. But that's not your goal. That's not the point of your vocation. You are actually called to mission in your vocation. A life of mission. Uh, uh, This means that we need to get out of the church ghetto. Now, I'm not sure exactly what it's like here at Christ Pres, but I think any tendency in any church, in any community, we very quickly uh, withdraw and begin to create a ghetto. And we can begin to forget and neglect our contribution and participation in the world outside of this community, these relationships, these walls. And we need to constantly be acknowledging that. Lord, may we not create a church ghetto. May we not recreate or attempt to recreate a Christendom where we can feel safe and secure. But instead, Lord, would you train us and teach us as we are in intimacy and apprenticing under Jesus to be together, to be one and unified and yet in that unity, to truly be in the world, we love people not as a tool, but because it is right, and we do so through our vocations. And uh, Michael Green, he uh, wrote a book years ago called Evangelism in the Early Church, and one of the one of the things that he points out, especially early on in the book, but this resonates throughout the book, is that the early Christians, they were not missionaries; they were not primarily missionaries; they were not primarily church planters they were servants they were craftspeople they were tradesmen and women and the Roman road under the peace of Rome allowed the transportation and the fluctuation back and forth and the the distribution of the gospel through normal people and so you have to ask well what does this mean where do I work where do I play where do I learn where do I live where are the people that I actually come into proximity with in my life? Because the people that you are in in presence with, that is your mission field of patient, love, and care, and listening, and understanding, and hospitality. Now, notice Jesus says in this passage, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He does not say, follow me, and now you are fishers of men. I will make you to become this. Jesus realizes he's patient. He knows that we don't know what we're doing. And what he's doing with the disciples, he is calling them to an apprenticeship. It is a process of understanding, of knowing, of walking with Jesus. He is patient. He's a patient master. And this does not mean being busier with church things. This does mean having a new priority on what the space and the time and the resources in our lives looks like and how it is to be used. So we must follow our invitation to relationship. You must follow Jesus' mission. And thirdly, you must follow his challenge. Right? This means our direction in life. Now, look at verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Look down at verse 20. And then immediately... He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They left their nets, and then they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now, Zebedee was the father. It means that uh, there was a family business here. Uh, There was something that these men were going to inherit. There was a legacy. You are fishermen. It was a part of their identity. It was something that they were adopting, that they had to bear now and enjoy the benefits of. But Jesus is not just calling them to leave their work, but to leave their identity and engage into a new identity. And this is a great challenge. Why? Because it means there's an opportunity cost. It means there's a sacrifice. The challenge of Jesus means that we might need to sacrifice advancement. It means we might need to sacrifice money. It means we might be called to move, or we might need to say no to a call to move. It means we might need to start over, or it means we might need to say no to starting over. It's a sacrifice into a life of newness. Fundamentally, what this is a sacrifice of is losing what we want. There was a, there's an article from the New York Times. This is old. This is from 2014, and I just happened to remember it. Um, is written by Gordon Marino. He's a philosophy professor um, at Saint Olaf College, and this article is titled "A Life Beyond Do What You Love." And what he's challenging is the concept in our culture uh, that encourages people to, to focus on what they love, what they're passionate about, and go after that. And he's not saying that's bad, but what he is challenging is the notion that uh, there isn't worth and value in work and serving other people for its own sake and finding passion there. And this is what he writes. As an occupational counselor, my knee-jerk reaction has always been, what are you most passionate about? Sometimes I'd even go into a sermonette about how it is important to distinguish between what we think we are supposed to love and what we really love. But is, do what you love, wisdom, or malarkey? Then he begins to unpack that and deconstruct it. And later on in the article, he writes this, the faith that my likes and dislikes Um, Our sense of meaning alone should decide what I do is part and parcel with the gospel of self-fulfillment. Jesus is actually bringing a counter-gospel. The true gospel, and that is a gospel of Christ fulfillment. And certainly we find our passion in that. We want to, we need to, and that's what Christ wants for us too. But it also means that we are setting aside what we want to prioritize what Christ wants. He goes on to say in the article, the universally recognized paragons of humanity, the Nelson Mandela's, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, and Martin Luther King's, did not organize their lives around self, fulfillment, bucket lists. They no doubt found a sense of meaning in their heroic acts of self-sacrifice, but they did not do what they were doing in order to achieve that sense of meaning. They did what they felt they had to do. Whatever the transcendent is, it demands obedience and the willingness to submerge and remold our desires. You see, Jesus isn't just calling uh, to your vocation, but he is calling and wanting to pursue your very desire and to refashion and recalibrate that, your desire for his kingdom. Now, there are young people in here, there are middle-aged people in here, there are older people in here, and this applies to all of us. You are not too old to be challenged and recalibrated. And you are not so young that you can't be challenged and recalibrated by the gospel. This involves the identity of our very life. Look at verse 19 through 20. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And then he called them and they left their father Zebedee. You see, Jesus demands to be first is what he's saying. It can't be Jesus and something else. Uh, there's a story of uh, a rich young man who comes to Jesus and wants to follow him. And uh, this rich young man, is, it sounds like he's a good man. He's followed the commandments. He's kept the law. And Jesus uh, actually looks at him and he engages him in conversation. Great patience. But Jesus is also very discerning. And he says, okay, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. that is not normative for all of us. Jesus isn't calling all of you to do that. He was calling this man to do that. Why? Because this was the place in the heart that was still uh, reserved for the self. Each one of us has a place in our hearts that we reserve for the self. It could be money. It could be our career. It could be our hobbies. It could be, what is it? Jesus wants access to that, and he's calling you to give him access to that. St. Ignatius of Loyola, he once wrote this, that there are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they abandon themselves into his hands and let themselves be formed by his grace. So there you have it. Three steps to be a better disciple. I guess I can go, no. Why? Well, The disciples had the three steps. They had invitation, they had mission, they had challenge. They had the three steps. We have the three steps now. How did the disciples do with the three steps? How did they do with it? Well, did they fill in their life following? Well, let's look at Peter. Peter, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well... Some say you're Elijah, some say you're this, some say you're the prophet. Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And we read in the book of Mark, Jesus sharply rebuked him. Why? It's because Peter was wrong. When Peter said, you are the Christ, he wasn't saying you are the the one, the servant sacrificed to come and give your life as a ransom for many. What Peter meant was, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the vengeful monarch who would come and kill all the Romans and empty out this city and this nation of all of our pagan oppressors and strike fear in those who oppress us. That's who you are. Peter was wrong. He was off. In Mark 14, what does Peter do? Well, Jesus is under trial. And what does Peter do? He runs away. And he abandons his friend. Peter had the three steps. Well, what about James and John? How about them? They had the three steps too. Well, James and John in Mark chapter 3, we actually see their name is uh, uh, Sons of Banargiges or something like that. I can't pronounce it. Sons of Thunder is what their nickname. The Sons of Thunder. Why is that? Well, in Luke chapter 9, we read that James and John, they went to a city and the city rejected the gospel. You know what James and John wanted to do? Lord, let us call down fire upon this city and destroy it all. They had a distorted perspective. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, they nestle up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you come into your glory, let us be on your right hand and your left hand because we want power. Jesus lovingly rebukes them again. They had the three steps. In Mark 16, James and John, James especially, was among they were among the group that were terrified. In fact, The end of the gospel ends with the disciples in terror. And they hid themselves, and and in the Greek it says, and they said nothing to no one, for they were terrified. A double negative. You see this, uh, you can't do this. We can't keep the three steps. They failed, we also fail. How? How do we fail? And yet, even in our failure, Jesus is patient. You see this? The Failures of the disciples. Jesus was patient. He did not give up. He did not say, oh, you're not good enough. Get away. In fact, Jesus drew near to them. How do we fail? I think one way we fail is that we generalize the calling. But Jesus is calling to you and you and you and you and me particularly, and us as a community, both and. And when we generalize the calling and we forget that Jesus is calling to me, what we tend to do is we begin to compare and we begin to rank. And this is exactly what Peter does. right? In fact, as they're walking along the beach in the Gospel of John, Peter looks behind him and he says to Jesus, well, what, what about this guy, Lord? And Jesus says, no, no, don't worry about him. You follow me, Peter. We begin to rank people and that becomes our righteousness, doesn't it? Well... They're not as educated as I am or, well, they don't make as much money as I do or they don't dress as snappily as I do. We can use anything to rank and create moral resumes. Well, another way that we fail is that we often have our own plan, just like Peter did, just like the disciples in their view of a Second Temple Jewish uh, Messiah, a vengeful monarch. They had their own plan. Or uh, just like in the old Depeche Mode song, Your own personal Jesus. You know that song, right? Please tell me. I guess I'm kind of old. Your own personal Jesus. What they're talking about is creating Jesus, making a Savior in our own image to give us what we want. And when we make our own plan, it kind of reveals that uh, we use control to create and to fill in that space with our own sense of righteousness. Another failure that we have is sometimes we never really respond. Right? we keep the doors open we want an exit strategy and so we don't commit right so we go with the most appealing whether it's sensuality or pleasure we're, we're looking to feel secure we may invest our time we may invest our money but not our hearts this is a searching out of security or sensuality to fill in our sense of righteousness or maybe we want a formula we want efficiency Lord, give me a formula. Give me exactly what to do. Show me how to do. Give me the steps. Give me the plan. But Jesus is not calling you to a formula. He's calling you to following him. He's calling you to intimacy, which is out of your control and mine, which makes it a lot more terrifying because we don't know what to expect from this Jesus. You know, or sometimes we might even get it right. But even at the heart of this getting it right is a list. I I used to teach high school, um, before going into ministry, and I taught high school at this school in north st louis and there 's this little little guy named uh, Robbie and he was a little quick little guy cross country runner, and uh, there was one race where they had to go back into the woods at one point and sweep into the woods, and then they had to run up a hill and as, uh, After they finished the race, this little guy Robbie came up to me and said he, he 's speaking with a unique St. Louis dialect of African Americans." Um, they kind of uh, do something special with their R's, and it's something only found in, in St. Louis. Um, he says, Coach Arn, Coach Arn, they be throwing bows, Coach. They be, what he was talking about was running up the hill. The other runners were trying to elbow him out, and they were throwing bows at little Robbie. This little spunky, fiery kid who fought his way through this crowd of big kids See, what we do when we get it right oftentimes, we can find ourselves throwing bows to get it right, which means crushing and pushing the other people behind us back. Why do we do this? Why do we fail? Well, I would say fundamentally, it's because we don't understand and we don't want real discipleship. There was a time years ago, I was, uh, I don't remember when it was, 2004 maybe, and I had uh, I had just sinned, and it felt really dramatic to me, really painful. And I was pacing inside my house, pacing back and forth, just crying out to the Lord. And uh, I was praying. And at one point, I remember praying, "Lord, when will I not need Your grace anymore?" And immediately, as I said it, it betrayed my heart, and maybe betrays many of our hearts. What I was saying is, Lord, when will I grow up and stand on my own two feet and be autonomous and not need you and, and, and be my own savior? This is the American church. Do we have a desire to be formed by Jesus or a desire to form? Martin Luther King, he gave us, you know, he wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail back in 1963 And uh, let me read a quote to you from this about the idea of being formed or forming. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced, when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the very mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed, and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Maybe again I've been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world. Uh, I think that this fear of discipleship under Jesus, something the American church desperately needs, as we see uh, the the power structure that we've become accustomed to switch and crumble. We are in a post-Christian world, just like the world of the first century. And we need to regain not political power. No. We don't need to seek to dominate and crush our foes. We need to regain a sense of discipleship. Apprenticing under Jesus. So why is it we fail? Well, maybe we haven't gotten Jesus' orders. right. What, is, what are his orders ultimately? Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the whole point of Mark. It's at the very headwaters of the book. Believe in the gospel that Jesus has indeed come to fulfill the glory. We try to fill in the glory, the rightness of life of faith in on our own, don't we? And sometimes we use goodness for that. Uh, you guys might have, you might be familiar with this quote from Flannery O'Connor's uh, novel *Wise Blood* and. She's describing the main character, Hazel Moats, and as she describes him, what she says about him is this, is that uh, he believed deep down that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. He's trying to get around needing grace by being really, really good. And throughout the novel, you actually see him repeating the phrase, this refrain happens again and again, I am clean, I am clean, I am clean, I am clean, he's giving himself a mantra, trying to reassure himself that he doesn't need grace. He doesn't need Jesus. And when we live that way, everything we do becomes our attempt to claim and create a sense of righteousness apart from Jesus. Uh, Last summer, my family and I went camping. And um, the morning that we woke up, it was was maybe 7 a.m. And we woke up, and there was some thunder way in the distance. And my wife and I looked at each other. We heard a second thing of thunder way in the distance, and we're like, "Okay, do we want to stay, or should we pack up?" We heard a third thing of thunder, and we're like, "Let's pack up. Let's pack up. We're going to pack up." And we got the kids up, and we like started scrambling everything together. We got everything tent coming down. We grabbed the dog. We grabbed everything. Put everything in the van. Everything is nice and tightly packed away in the van. We're the only people awake in the campground. Get everything in the van. And I realize, oh, no, I forgot my cell phone charger over at the plug-in thing. So I get out, and I run, I grab it. I I grab the cell phone charger. By this time, thunder is just rolling all over the place, and the wind is blowing, and the trees are buffeting. And I run back to the van. Immediately as I step inside the van and close the door, the deluge just poured down. And all my, my family sat inside the van, and we just laughed. Hysterically, we were just roaring with laughter and just delight. And then we began to drive out of the campground. And we drove past all these poor suckers who were getting out of their tents, <laughs> who were just now making their way out of their tents as they were collapsing under the rain, which, which made us laugh even more, which is pretty, I mean, we're terrible people. And we drove out of the campground, and by the time we got to the garbage cans, the rain had slowed down, and I got out, threw away the garbage, and we pulled out to the ranger station, and there was something... Inside of my heart that needed to tell the ranger, hey, we, we made it. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> I had camp strike righteousness. What's the point of that story other than inserting some laughter in the middle of the sermon? The thing is, is that we grab a hold of anything we can for righteousness if we're in a place of uh, forgetting who our real Savior is or or maybe not uh, our, our minds, our hearts not being aligned to his, it's so easy to elbow other people out, to grab a hold of anything we can for righteousness. But the key to following Jesus isn't just merely to follow the three rules, it's to go back to his proclamation of the gospel. All the way back to Isaiah 52 because his proclamation is coming from Isaiah 52, our Old Testament reading this morning. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people." He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has laid bare His holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But we can't just stop there. We have to press into, well, what, what is this Gospel that Isaiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God 800 years before Jesus even came onto the scene? What else is a part of this Gospel? He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, our failures, our attempts at righteousness, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of that claiming righteousness and making it for ourselves to fill in that glory. It's not just a problem. That is an offensive sin against a holy God. That is actually worthy of wrath and condemnation. My little exercise to give righteousness to myself in the eyes of this park ranger because we struck camp a funny story but I was trying to uh, smooth over the fissures in my insecurities and frailties and weaknesses by this frail thin thing and that's not just a mistake that is a sin and we read of Jesus giving his life for that piercing being pierced for that yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the heart of the gospel, right? Peace and glory and goodness and righteousness given. Yes, yes. But at this cost, at this cost, at this price, right? God's love is not just love. God's love is grace, and grace is costly love for us, but for you. And Jesus Christ calls for a response. Calls for a response. Verse 15, we read this. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First of all, what this means is, number one, Jesus is saying the time has been fulfilled. This is uh, in the Greek, it's in perfect tense, which means that uh, it's it's a past action. It has happened with present and future implications. It has happened, and there are implications now and even into the future that will unfold and unpack. The gospel is news about what Jesus has done in the past to to bring about forgiveness from sin. It's not about what you can do now. That is uh, where religion gives us news about what you must do to serve and create your own forgiveness from sin. Religion is a method of self-atonement. The gospel is a method of Jesus' atonement. But in verse 15, we also read this. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The word time here is actually the word kairos, not the word chronos. The word chronos is more of a kind of a regular time, a chronological view of time. Time comes, time goes. Kairos is a sort of time that is weighted with significance. It's a time, a pivot point in a moment. Oz Guinness, he writes in the book *Character Counts*. He writes this about kairos: the hour is the God-given moment of destiny, not to be shrunk from but seized with decisiveness. The flood tide of opportunity and demand in which the unseen waters of the future surge down to the present. And God is calling. Every moment is filled as a kairos moment as we learn to follow Jesus or maybe are called to follow Jesus. And maybe some of you now are are being confronted lovingly, patiently with our Savior with a kairos moment that Jesus is actually calling you to respond to. You see, this king, he doesn't come to crush his enemies. He doesn't come to shame his enemies. He comes to be crushed. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve. And this requires his death. His death is imminent. This is why Mark is propelled forward to the cross. And this also means this is our pattern as Christians. We're to follow Jesus. And this means a cross-shaped life. This is what Jesus gets at in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9. What does he say? Take up your cross and follow me. This means day after day. Henry Nowen, he was a Catholic priest, he writes this in the book, In the Name of Jesus. This might sound morbid and masochistic, but for those of you who have heard the voice of the first love and said yes to it, the downward moving way of Jesus is the way to the joy and peace of God. A joy and peace that is not of this world. You see, the normative Christian life is a life of, of the cross. It's a life of suffering. Suffering on behalf of other people, not because we are the Savior, but because we follow this Savior who has suffered for our sake. And so that means you can sacrifice. That means you can respond to challenge. That means that the, the mission of God can become your hermeneutic, your lens of interpreting your whole life. Because Jesus has gone this way for us first. This is the Gospel. This is part of what it means to repent and believe. Certainly receiving forgiveness, but also following Jesus in this lifestyle moment by moment, which means entering into with Jesus into unpacking and interrogating our sin. And This is something we talked about about as the men this weekend, the idea of interrogating our sin. Actually following Jesus as we suffer when he unpeels the real motivations of our heart. This is what St. Augustine writes about this. I intend to remind myself of my past foulnesses and carnal corruptions, not because I love them so, but so that I may love you, my God. It is from love of your love that I make the act of recollection. Apprenticing under Jesus means inviting him to peel off those layers of self-righteousness, to peel back the layers of resistance, to peel back the layers of mistakes and failure and allow that heart to be exposed to what He has done and what He has given us in the Gospel. Submitting to these merciful wounds from our King, it can feel like death. But it's the only way to fill in your existence with life with glory, with purpose, with purity, with peace, with rightness restored. Jesus has fulfilled the kingdom of God. He has fulfilled the promise, the gospel. So repent today with joy and believe in this good news because we follow a loving, patient, pursuing King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the gospel. We praise You, Lord, for giving your only Son whom you loved, your beloved Son, to come and live the perfect life, fulfilling the law perfectly and fulfilling all of the requirements that righteousness called for on our behalf. For taking on the death that we deserved on our behalf. For being raised to life and, and extending that life to those who are in Him for us. to For ascending into heaven, Lord, and sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in the midst of your people in our very lives, Lord, to truly bring us hope and restoration and power to apprentice under Jesus and to receive this gospel anew today and day after day as you refine us into the image of your Son. Lord, now as we approach the table, we ask that you would make it apparent and real and clear to us the depth of your love, the costly love that we can now rejoice in We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.